John chapter 8, beginning at verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I am going, or I'm sorry, I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, uh, you, uh, let, I'm sorry, let me read that again. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own, on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed him. Uh, believed in him. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Light. The uh, creation begins with the creation of light. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Let there be light. Now, when we think about the light that Jesus is referring to here, as he refers to himself, he's not talking about that light. He's the light that came before the light. If you look at uh, the Nicene Creed, let me just take you there a minute. This is, a, I think, a helpful and important thing to note. It's uh, on page 846 in the Pew Bible. So 846. 
And there in the Nicene Creed, we've got, I think, uh, or at least I hope, something that uh, will be familiar to you. So the, uh, the creed begins, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And then, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Begotten, not made. If you're the sort of person who gets a little frustrated by splitting hairs, that might seem to be a hair splitter to you. What's the difference between begotten and made? There's an enormous difference between the two. There's a world of difference between the two. And that distinction is something that's been lost on many people. I I saw recently uh, uh, the results of a survey conducted by Ligonier Ministries. Maybe maybe some of you have seen this these, these results. I can't recall the percentage, but it was an alarmingly large number, high percentage of people who attend evangelicals who believe that Jesus was created, was made. They have no understanding of what's being affirmed in the Nicene Creed. Jesus isn't the first made thing. Jesus is light of light, God of God. Begotten, not made, before all worlds. So there was light before there was light, if you get my drift. God is light. And what we have that, you know, when we look around and we see the light which illuminates the world that we live in, what we have is an analogy. This is like the light of God. So when Jesus is referring to himself as the light, He's not talking about these lights or even the sun in the sky. He's talking about truth, the kind of truth that we see in 1 John when I read that passage earlier, and I'll get back to that in a minute. Now, when we think about truth, we can think about truth in terms of its practical and theoretical uh, dimensions. And uh, what we see here in uh, what Jesus has to say is uh, he begins with the practical. See there in verse 12, verse 12, he says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Okay, there's the proposition. Whoever follows me, ah, verb, follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light, or a light of life. And so there's a kind of following that brings about a kind of illumination. So the light shines on the way, but the point is, it's a way. There's something that we do. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Now, walking in darkness, as we saw from that passage in Proverbs, can hurt because you stumble. You can't see where you're going. You know, you've probably had that experience in the middle of the night, getting out of bed, forgetting that the table was there or the end, you know, you know how it goes. Boom! <laughs> it probably wasn't laughter. It was probably cry of pain. But that's what happens when you can't see where you're going. But here, what we have is walking, and in the process of following Christ, we have light. We enjoy the light. Now, there's a kind of a chicken and egg problem here, I think, that people have a difficult time sort of comprehending. They kind of stumble over it. You know, I think that uh, what they're looking for is theoretical knowledge 
and they want that first. They want to have theoretical knowledge because they want to see where they're going. They don't want to just go and see. They want to see and go. You see what I'm getting at? That's how people are. Now, the word theory, uh, that's a, that has an, a fascinating provenance. It comes to us from the Greek, and it literally means to see. Now, I think that a lot of times when we hear you know, the word theory used, people will say, oh, that was, that's just a theory, misunderstanding what the sort of meaning is behind the word theory. By, by the way, the, the, the word theater is where, uh, you know, is one, one manifestation of the word theory. So as in Greek, we have theoreo, theoreo, theoreo. And theoreo is where we get the word theater, where you go to watch, to see a play or a film or what have you. So theory is, is seeing. And so we, we like to have this uh, experience of seeing so that we can proceed knowledgeably, that we can be informed in our actions. Uh, we want to wait and see. You've probably heard that phrase. Let's wait and see. The idea being that we just don't have enough information yet. We need some more information so we can behave intelligently, so we can proceed intelligently. But uh, one of the problems is, is that life just doesn't doesn't cooperate sometimes. Sometimes life just kind of brings you along or carries you along, and you have, to, you have to do things before you know as much as you'd like to know. You might have heard this term, the paralysis of analysis. In other words, there's just no end to the research that you can conduct before you, you know, act. And I've known people who've been like this. I had a friend you know, Cedric Harvey back in uh, Cambridge, remember Cedric? He was an engineer. This is a typical problem for engineers. They don't like to act without having it all sort of planned out, know every little thing and uh, have it all in place before they do anything. And then they discover that all the things that they thought they knew were not actually as comprehensive as uh, or inclusive of all the things that they would need to do as they thought was, would be the case. But anyways, that's how a lot of these folks... But Cedric was one of these guys. He frustrated his wife, Shirley, to no end. And because uh, they had purchased a house and he was fixing it up. And he was a very good, you know, uh, and, and I, I think accomplished do-it-yourselfer. Did great work. Just took him years to do it. And Shirley and, you know, you know and the children watched him move in slow motion. <laughs> As children grew and left home, the house remained uncompleted. Anyway, life has a way of just kind of moving you along uh, and requiring things of you, whether you're ready or not. It's just the way it is. But uh, what we're told here is that obeying is a way to come into a place where you can see. The word obey is an interesting word. It has its own provenance. It's an interesting provenance. It's Latin, uh, and it means to hear. Now, it's fascinating that when we hear the word obey, you know, we assume that there's this kind of, you know, first you hear and then you obey. In other words, there's an act that follows the hearing. In the mind of uh, Romans, or, you know, in the minds of Romans, to hear is to obey. You don't really you, you can't really say you've heard, in other words, until you've done. If you haven't done, you haven't heard. 
To hear is to obey. Obey means to hear, to act. And what Jesus uh, does when he calls his disciples is he tells them, follow me, right? He doesn't say, stand there and consider me for a while. And if you decide that it's, you know, worthwhile to a worthwhile thing to do, then, you know, tag along. He says, follow me, follow me. And it's through the process of obeying his leading, of following him, that we see where we're going. The, sort of the, the, the ground is illuminated right at our feet. This is, by the way, uh, a, a, a pattern that we can see throughout Scripture. When... When God called Abram back in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, what did he say? He said, go, leave your father's household and go to the land I will show you. What is it as though he, you know, he kind of sat back, had a big map projected on the wall and lots of photographs of this beautiful place down south that he was supposed to move to and then he was enticed to go. The Lord just said, get up and go. And after you are moving, you'll see where you're going, where I'm leading you. I think that it's an important thing to keep in mind. By the way, the word comes before the light. Remember that in the order of creation? The Lord says, God says, let there be light. First comes the word, then comes the light. These are things to keep in mind. Anyway. Now, there's uh, another fascinating statement in this passage, and it relates to this matter of light. But it's a little further down, and uh, you see it there in verses 31 and 32. And uh, Jesus tells us uh, the people who had believed in him. That's an important uh, thing to note. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Notice they're the same order. Abide. Abiding is a verb. Abide in my word. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, hardly anyone ever believes this. I think that for most folks, the last thing they want is the truth. Because with the truth comes what? Responsibility. You know, people don't want to know the truth because if they had some sense that this is the truth, then that would require something of them. You know know the saying, ignorance is bliss. Ah, I just don't know anything, so I'm not responsible for anything. I actually felt this way when I worked for a large corporate bank during my time in college. You know, uh, worked there for, you know, I guess it was two and a half, three years, and I just wanted to know enough to do my job and nothing else. I just wanted to go in, do my job, and leave. And, uh, you know, uh, I didn't have any future with the company or anything. I had, and I didn't have much, I didn't find much enjoyment in the work. Uh, but that was the frame of mind. I'm not saying it's praiseworthy. I'm not commending it to you. I'm just saying that's the way I thought. And I think a lot of folks, when it comes to this matter of knowing God's will, have that same attitude. please. Don't tell me. <laughs> I don't want to be responsible for anything, anything else. I just want to kind of keep my, my exposure 
as uh, you know, uh, to you know, this whole matter of accountability is as uh, uh, limited as I can, because I just kind of want to get through life, do things, you know, that I want to do. And people have this kind of mindset. C.S. Lewis got into this. This was certainly my mindset when I worked for State Street Bank of Boston. My mindset was, I have to give you certain things, but I'd rather not give you everything. I'd like to reserve some things for myself, including, you know, when I'm here at work, because I know the work so well, my mind can wander and I can think about other things. I don't have to think about anything that I don't already know. And so consequently, I have this sort of ability to, you know, fulfill my responsibilities to the bank and then kind of let my mind wander and think about the things I want to think about. I think that's how many people think about this whole matter of truth and God's will. They, they more or less think, well, hey, you know, it's like taxes. You know, God's will is like taxes. You know, you got to... This is, by the way, the way C.S. Lewis describes this problem in mere Christianity. People have this, this sense that, well, you know, I've got to give God, you know, the, you know the, what he, what's his due with regard to obeying the Ten Commandments. But hey, once I've done that, the rest of the time is mine. But that is uh, really a pitiful way to think. Because the riches that we can enjoy when we know the truth far outweigh whatever pleasures we find in doing things that we think ignorantly, remember ignorance, ignorantly, on our own, by the way. There's another word with a, with a marvelous provenance. Ignorance uh, comes from the, uh, the, the Greek for on your own. So it's where we get the term idiosyncratic. When you say somebody's got some idiosyncrasies, you know, you say, well, they're just kind of quirky. You know, they're their own sort of people. (laughs) You know, they're not like other folks. Uh, So when we're on our own, we're idiots. What we need is to be tied into the truth of God. And the truth will make us free. Now, the reason why we don't think this way is because we think freedom is absolute. We think that freedom is a value that cannot be qualified by anything else. And as a result, what we end up doing is giving, we end up giving ourselves over to our unruly passions. This sort of part of ourselves that, that lacks any kind of you know, intelligence is just sort of a matter of, you know, fulfilling certain urges and desires. And we think that anything that gets in the way of of those desires and their fulfillment is oppressive. Well, you know, if you want to learn the hard way what real slavery is, give yourself over to your passions. Just do whatever they say. And you'll end up, like so many people, slaves to sin particularly sins of the appetite. You know, if you go to, uh, well, you know, let me just give you an example of someone who was a slave to his appetites and really regretted it. We had a, we had a, a man who lived with us years ago by the name of Jim. Jim was a crack addict. But Jim was a marvelous painter. And I don't mean fine art. I'm just talking about house painting. He's <laughs> probably the quickest and... Uh, uh, most gifted house painter I've ever seen. And so uh, 
while he lived with us, he did a lot of painting. We wanted him to feel like he was making a contribution, and uh, he did. He made a marvelous contribution. Unfortunately, uh, Jim also helped himself to other things that he didn't have a right to while he was with us. He stole our microwave oven, I remember. He stole my bike. In fact, he stole my bike, and I've not owned an, another bike until I bought a bike this year. So it was like 30 years without a bike. But anyway, he stole the bike. And then, whenever he would steal something, he was just so remorseful, genuinely remorseful, tears. He didn't want to do it. It was like, you know, we see in Romans where Paul says, what I want to do, I can't do, and what I don't want to do, I do. And he would read that and say, that's me, that's me, that's me. Finally, he sold the church offering. And man, he felt bad about that. I felt bad about it too because I said, Jim, it's over. You got to go. I don't care where you go, but you're not going to be here anymore. Goodbye. Now, the story ends happily. Jim is a Christian today and lives back down in Trinidad and uh, is doing fine. All the reports that we received, he's doing great. But he was a slave to those unruly passions. Initially, he thought what they promised him was freedom. Just give yourself over to these things and you'll be free. What he discovered is that the body and its desires makes an excellent servant but a very bad master. You don't want to be a slave to your sinful tendencies. Truth is what's absolute. Truth is, is what our freedom ought to be directed toward. We have to choose something, right? A person who is completely committed to the absolute value of freedom can never make up his mind. You've seen the guy with the television, you know, and the, and the, and the remote control, switching back and forth. And then he's got picture in picture, and then that's not enough. He doesn't want to settle on anything because he feels like he'll lose out on something if he makes a choice. Our freedom is not absolute, is to be exercised in the service of God's truth. And when we choose God's truth, we're truly free. Free to be what we were made to be, the images of God, right? That's genuine freedom. Now, where does the light come from? And this, by the way, is what's uh, the subject of the debate between Jesus and and those who are questioning him, the Pharisees. So we see there in verse 13, the Pharisees raise, uh, or raise this objection. Uh, after Jesus says, I am the light of the world, they say to him, uh, you are bearing testimony about yourself. Your testimony is not true. This is a problem. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. And then this is why. For I know where I came from. And where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or come from or where I'm going. So uh, then he calls his father to the witness stand and says, My father is also my witness. In verse uh, 17, he says, In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the father who sent me bears witness about me. And then Jesus goes on to say that whatever his father wants him to do or to say, that's what he says and does. And if you knew him, you would know the father. And, of course, later in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, 
When he's asked, show us the Father, he says, well, when you see me, you see the Father. Remember I said when I, when I introduced uh, this series of I am uh, sayings uh, you know, uh, back last week that uh, we have the thesis statement right there in the first uh, few verses of uh, John's Gospel. Let me take you back there. Uh, we see there in chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. With God was God. And so Jesus is the communication of God. And there's no, no sign signified or signifier signified distinction in the, in the ultimate sense. At the essential level, they are one and the same. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. The Father is in him, and he is in the Father. One. And so uh, the thing I'd like to focus on, though, is the, is the, is the problem <clears throat> of seeing light. Um, one of the things that we have here is uh, this, this problem sort of addressed in a, in a kind of roundabout way. Uh, Jesus says, when, a, when he's answering the objection that uh, his testimony is not true, he says, I do bear, bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. So the problem is the light, uh, in terms of its, its illumination, illuminates other things, and there is no light which illuminates light. Do you see what I'm getting at? If you were to say, you know, I can't see the light in this room, turn on another light so that I can see the light. That's the kind of absurdity that we're dealing with here. Jesus is the light. And he's the light because he is the one who comes from above. He is the one who's literally out of this world. He's come into the world to illuminate the truth. And uh, there's this marvelous quote that comes from C.S. Lewis. It's from his collected letters, which illustrates this uh, the nature of, of what is being uh, spoken about here. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Now, if you've ever tried to look, really look at the sun, what do you get? You're blinded by the light. <laughs> That's what you can't, it's just so overwhelmingly powerful. You're just like, ah, I can't see. And you're blinking and you still see the, you know, the image of the sun on, your, in, on, on the inside of your eyelids. And you're just like, ah, it takes you a while to adjust. The light helps you see everything else. You see what I'm getting at? One of the marvelous things about the Christian faith is that it helps you to see the world as it truly is. Every human philosophy, in some sense, draws from that light, but it has a way of mingling darkness with it. And because of that, every uh, human philosophy, in some sense, is blind to certain things. It's only the truth of God, as we see it in Christ, that we have the full picture. We see what reality really is, and we see what we really are. We are made in the image of God and yet fallen, capable of sin. In fact, we are sinners, not just capable of sin. Uh, We are, by definition, sinners because when we do not 
know the light of God. We walk in darkness. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And when Jesus says that, he's hearkening back, reminding his, uh, his listeners about something that was said in the Old Testament back in the book of Exodus. Remember when Moses sees the burning bush there in chapter 3, and he goes to the burning bush and he's told to take off his sandals because he's on holy ground, and then he's told that he's supposed to go and deliver the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt. And, and then he asks the question, well, who am I supposed to say sent me? Who am I supposed to say sent me? And the response that he gets from the bush is tell them, I am. I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. And then the, the, uh, the voice elaborates. And by the way, tell them that, uh, uh, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent you. But that I am, that I am is key. The seven I am sayings in John's gospel are all Jesus saying, I am him. I'm him. He's me. He's the one who sent me. The Father and I are one. Now, human beings are nocturnal creatures in their fallen state. We love to hide in the dark recesses of the world. We're like those creatures that... uh, hide in the bushes and only come out at night. And uh, the reason is because uh, the fact that uh, we're we're sinners and we don't like to have our sins exposed. Uh, If you go back to John chapter 3 and look at verse 19, this is that that part of the third chapter of John that people never seem to get to. You know, they they love John 3.16. Just to remind you, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, everybody loves that. But if you jump down to verse 19, we read these words. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The light of God exposes us as sinners and because of that, we recoil. We don't want to hear that. You know, tell me something positive, preacher. Don't focus on the negative. Well, I want you to know that the light of God is as positive as you could possibly imagine because not only does the light of God bring to light our fallenness, our sins, but in that light, we know the mercy of God. And let me just uh, remind you of that passage from 1 John that I read a little while ago, beginning at verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, no falsehood. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if our behavior is not something that is conducted in the light, we are in the dark. But, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In other words, if we confess our sins, we receive the forgiveness of our sins. If we hide because we're sinners, the sin remains. The only way that we can know 
the mercy and grace of God is by stepping out of the dark and saying, I'm a sinner. I have sinned. I have fallen short of the glory of God. Forgive me. And in that light, as we tell God the truth and ourselves the truth, we enjoy the mercy of God's forgiveness. Let's pray. Receive this benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.